Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or how to think, but discuss why people believe what they do and why it matters. On this journey, we will speak with artists, curators, influencers, and pastors. I'm Aaron Ross. And I'm Ben Gomez. Today on Everyday Theology, I have um, the pleasure of, and I say that a lot, but I really mean it, and I do mean it every time, but especially to have Andre Henry with us, who is um, a friend of mine. We graduated together um, from our undergrad degrees, I mean, at least around the same time. We did some music together. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's still an odd video out there of Andre playing the keys for some, like, TBN thing, and I'm (laughs) up in the corner singing, and I still get, like... At least once a year, a family member being like, did you know you're on TV? And I'm like, <laughs> just turn it off, like, please. <laughs> um, but we have Andre with us, and we have been with us again today. Um, we're excited to have this conversation. We're going to kind of go in, in a lot of different ways, but I'm going to let Andre introduce himself, and we'll go from there. Uh, sure. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Andre. I do things. I don't know. What oh, am yeah. I supposed to say? Yeah, tell us about your your <laughs> your website, your your mission, what you're doing with a yeah, lot of for sure. So, um, in a in an official capacity, I work for a justice organization called Evangelicals for Social Action. I run their Racial Justice Institute. I'm the program manager for that program, and basically, what I do there is try to think uh, think of you know what what actions can we practically take with faith communities to mobilize them toward racial justice work and that kind of thing. Um, outside of that, <laughs> I write and I podcast and make all different kind of media music, you know, also around themes of racial justice and, and social change, uh, especially social change has been like really like my, my biggest passion lately is um, just exploring how do, how do societies change and how do ordinary people uh, work together to make that change happen? Yeah, maybe maybe define for our listeners when you mean social change. What kind of social change are you envisioning, especially with um, evangelicals for social action? Mm-hmm. And then, as a follow up already on that, is what do you think the biggest hurdle is for a lot of people in recognizing both the need for and engagement with social change? Yeah, well, when I talk about social change, um, that is. That is a great question because society is always changing, right? right? It's what kind of change, you know, are we talking about? Are we talking about uh, progress, you know? Um, And if we're talking about social progress, you know, what does that actually look like? But um, it could change in any different way. So I'm definitely talking about uh, how do we move forward, you know, racial progress? How How do we actually have a society where there is equity along racial lines? I mean, I think ultimately... You know, we would hope for a society where racial cate- where race categor- race categories are obsolete. Yeah, you. Would, I mean, the ideal like that. That right. would be great. Now we're nowhere near that. <laughs> and, right. And we don't want to just say that we're post racial like we did in two thousand eight because <laughs> when 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 we do that <laughs> when we do that and it's actually not the case then we're just masking the right, the yeah, power imbalances sure. and inequities that actually exist. Right. But. Ultimately, that is the kind of social change that I would hope that we could, that I want for us to move toward. I don't even want to say bring about because, you know, who knows? It, that might be something that's not attainable, you know, right. within our lifetimes. 
at the same time, theoretically, it is totally attainable. Like everyone could just stop being like <laughs> terrible to each other. <laughs> like people could, <laughs> you know, we we, be nice. we could yeah. stop being terrible to each other. That's not impossible. Yeah. It's it's unlikely, right? Um, what is the big hurdle to that? Also, a huge question. You know, uh, for me in my work, I'm usually thinking about white supremacy, which is a global problem. Um, and so I couldn't speak to that in like a global sense, right? Because I'm a black American. I grew up I grew up in the U.S. That's the context that I know the best. Yeah. I couldn't tell you like what needs to happen in New Zealand, you know, to to improve relations right, between yeah. The, yeah. the aboriginal population and the 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 white population there. But in America, I think honestly one of the biggest hurdles to this is our common sense. Mm. We have in America a white supremacist common sense. And when I say that, there are a bunch of white people that get defensive about it. Oh, oh yeah. Right, <laughs> Which is yeah. also a part of that hurdle, right? Because yeah. if you can't name the problem, you can't fix the problem. Right. If you get defensive about the problem. You know, like if I come in here and I just like, I just had an onion sandwich for breakfast. And you're like, God, Andre, your breath is kind of strong. <laughs> I could be offended by that right. <laughs> and not do anything about it. Or I could go brush my teeth or something, you know, <laughs> or have a breath mint or something. Now, problem solved, right? Yeah. So, so anyway, back to the... The primary problem, I think, is that we have a white supremacist common sense. And what I mean by that is that uh, the logic of this society in the U.S. was built on the premise that some people are superior to others. Yeah. There's no way around that. Right. <laughs> That's what it was built on. And we've never actually had any sustained, widespread, and thorough uh, movement to change that, you know? If people want to bring up the civil rights movement and say, well, you know, we changed the laws and we integrated schools and all that kind of stuff. Well, yes, but we had to fight you tooth and nail for you to do that much. And that is not a thorough, <laughs> widespread, right, and intentional and sustained effort to change. So <clears throat> if I, I'm, a, I'm the youngest of five, I had an older brother that just like loved to kind of pick on me all the time, right? There's if my brother comes home every day and he's he kicks me, right? Just kicks me one good time. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like right? Yeah. right? I'm like, gosh, stop I love it. You. Which is something which is something that was, was likely to happen, right? Um so okay, my brother comes home, he kicks me every day. I'm like, gosh, just just stop kicking me, right? So if he stops kicking me eventually after I like, you know, maybe I kick him back, he stops kicking me. But then like the next week he comes home and just starts punching me in the arm. Like that's not progress. <laughs> right? We just shit. Right? That's not progress. Right. And he's not actually showing that he has the intention to actually do right by me. Yeah. He's just abiding by certain boundaries now. Mm. And that's the kind of progress that we have in America where it's not that, you know, America has said, we want to make right what was wrong here. Right. We want to intentionally take stock of the harm that has been done because of what Brian Stevenson calls the narrative of racial difference. And we want to make sure that we undo as much of that history as possible. That's not the kind of progress that we've had in this country. We've had the kind of progress that says, oh, well, you know, we can't get away with kicking him anymore. Let's punch him in the arm. Right. Yeah. Which which reminds me I think of of other 
scenarios and not even about race, but like I think about people who, for instance, let's say there's a company who has a board and the board has always been white upper class men. And the board is recognizing, oh, we need to have a woman on this board. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they create a seat that's just for a woman. Mm-hmm. And now that seat has to be occupied by a woman. And we go, yay, there's a woman on the board. But really what we're saying is we had to actually create that seat for a woman because none of us in this board would actually. Uh, Ray, if you want to say something, man, grab the mic. Grab it from me. You can have Ray's also in the room with us just because <laughs> I love Ray as well. <laughs> no, I think that Ray and I are looking at each other because I think that there are some uh, church denominations, right, that are patriarchal in their assessment, the way they do things. And they do create um, a seat for, you know, people of color or ethnic minorities. Uh, And they do create a seat for women as a way where Andre just said, hey, let's not kick them now. Let's punch them in the arm. We're moving towards progress, but it's more kind of like what happens at birthday parties for my family. There's two tables. There's the adult table, mm-hmm. and then there's oh, the yeah. kid yeah. table. And at the kid table is, we're going to create space for you to pretend like you're a part of the big conversation and big people, but you're not. And so there's still rules of what you're saying. Well, uh, the, the thing is that white people have learned in America that you cannot explicitly uh, express anti-black sentiment. That's what white Americans have learned. Hmm. from the civil rights movement. And so what that means is that white people know that in order to avoid the accusation of being racist, you need to have people of color in your organization and institution. So token diversity is a way to make sure that they'll never be accused of being racist. And that's the motivation. It's not about sharing power with people of color. So we have you here as a shield in some ways, right? Yeah. And so creating that seat at the table for this woman is not necessarily because you were trying to empower women and you realize that you need a woman's perspective. It's so that no one can accuse your organization of being right. patriarchal. Right. right. And what people don't realize is in this whole um, conversation about coming to the table, um, having a seat at the table is actually not that important as what you are doing at the, as the project that is taking place yeah. at the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> So if at the table what you are doing is maintaining a a white supremacist society or white white supremacy yeah a white supremacist society which by the way the problem with racism um is not just about being together it's about who has power you right, know right. how we're sharing power right. and that's what that's what the civil rights leaders were calling out not not that Dr. King did not fight so that we had that the privilege to sit next to white people you know yeah. like that's right. it's, I mean, I, I, I love y'all, but I mean, you're not that special. <laughs> Yo, you know? It's like, just me in the room. You're like, Yo, I'm looking at me I'm like, all right, you know, yeah, I love you too. Andre. Right now, Aaron is the representative <laughs> for all white people in the, in the room. <laughs> How does it feel? <laughs> you know. Um, so, so anyway, I'm saying that that is the issue. It's about power sharing. So you can sit at a table that is a white supremacist state, and it doesn't matter what color you are, color you are. Like yeah. if you're black, you can sit at you can sit at the table where black people continue to be marginalized and participate in the project that continues to marginalize black people. You can be Latino, Latina, Latina, you can be Asian American or Asian, you can be you can be any color and participate in that. 
And that's what's so important for us to understand. In examples like the one, <laughs> the one that you brought up, us just being together, d- diversity is not the same as justice. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe, I don't know, maybe just riff on that. Like when you say diversity is not the same as justice, like how does that play out as you see it? Well, <laughs> Ray just, Ray just, this is Ray's area, yeah, and I, I feel like I just spoke to that. So, so I think this no, is no, 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 Ray. No, no. Do you want to say over to Ray? Hey, everyone. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, welcome, it's, welcome back, Ray. By I'm, the way, I'm back. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. I wish I had for, a fourth mic so you could just have a mic. It's all good, man. I, I love the conversation, but I, you know, as Andre, like even just hearing that statement, the I think we become so unaware of how quickly like the power struggle like will suck up like new um new language to articulate like the spaces of freedom like mm. it becomes this it, it's almost like this race to like to figure out can you define with enough strength and enough um resiliency language that will articulate like what is necessary in order for there to be like forward movement and if you do not do it quick enough words like diversity now become kind of open game to almost the highest bidder. And now diversity becomes like a word that no longer is actually supporting this sharing of power. It actually now becomes a word that becomes kind of like the, the lock and key for this opportunity for marginalized and oppressed individuals to begin to move forward. And so when yeah. you say that, when you say diversity is not justice, I'm like a hundred percent because mm-hmm. diversity has now been, it has been usurped yeah. to really be this word that, that essentially means I can create a space here where no one looks the same. We don't think the same. We don't come from the same places and I can do all that and still maintain all the power all the ability to make, like I can still possess the power, create that space, and you believe that you're getting somewhere. Right. Mm. You know, it's like when when you when you talk about racism with white Americans, like there's, here's here's one way that we can see this this misconception like happening just inter- interpersonally, right? White people are always like, "I'm not racist." What do they say? I got black friends, mm. right? As though their proximity to people of color somehow. <clears throat> somehow makes it impossible for them to it, yeah. it makes it impossible yeah. for them to ever participate in the culture that we have and and while I'm or on to that, be critiqued right to say like if I can say that I've got a black friend you can't critique me you can't tell me that I'm doing something wrong cuz look I'm I'm doing something right right exactly and we have to understand that like just being um just being together is not the thing in the sense that like black people and white people have always lived together in America you know, even when there was segregation, it wasn't like they had no contact. Like black people were working, working for white people. They yeah. were going into white neighborhoods and working and then going back to their neighborhoods, you know, at the end of the day or, or whatnot. You know, you can go even further back. And I mean, look at, you know, some of these white slaveholders, they impregnated black women. They had black children. Yeah. They had black children that they still enslaved and they still sold as property and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's not it's just not about proximity, you know, and that's that's just a lesson that we we have, and I think that these all these come back to our common sense, the way that we think about racism, the way that we talk about racism, 
the way that we understand the problem of racism is largely just incorrect in America. So um, as you say that and you kind of brush on, you know, American history, it's hard for me not to think about the greatest commandment. Of course. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Yes. And so there's a space where nationalism and Christianity have been kind of intertwined. And there is a difference because what I'm hearing you say, right, and as a, a Latino male, right, mm-hmm. immigrant born outside the U.S., mm-hmm. I think about that and I think about even in our Christian circles how we don't love neighbor, right, and how we think we're diverse. But, you know, I've never invited Andre over to have coffee in my house, but I invite, you know, these other people, right, or an institution or institutions we have where there's a there's a type of student that maybe um, a professor or an individual feels more comfortable approaching mm-hmm. and being around with that it's not the same as somebody that might look different right um, and so how do we how do we help you know um, our listeners say man I realized that then I've done that right I've been the cause of not loving my neighbor as I've been called to. Um, and instead of looking at diversity saying, well, I sit in the same pews or or right. I'm around them, that's not the same as loving that neighbor. Well, something interesting about the example that you used, right, is like there is there is there are some implicit, I want to say power dynamics, even to the idea of like who gets invited over to whose house, right? Like one thing that I've seen in my personal friendships and the reason why I, I come back to the personal a lot is because I genuinely believe that a lot of these social justice issues at the end of the day are interpersonal issues. They're yeah. relational issues, yeah. which is speaks to your point of loving your neighbor. Right. That's that's why it has something to do with this. So I I take note when my friends always, you know, my quote unquote friends, if they always are able to give me advice, but they don't want any advice from me. Mm. Right. They can they can invite me over to their house and treat me to a meal. They can cook dinner, but they don't they don't want to come to my house and let, right. and sit down for a meal that I've prepared, you know. And it's like, well, wait, like why? That's the nature of relationship. There's reciprocity, right? Yeah. That that's where you see equality in a relationship, right? Is that yeah. we're able to participate in the same way. If you have to stay in the position of mentor or provider or or whatnot, then there's an imbalance there, right? Yeah. And so. You see this in churches, multi-ethnic evangelical churches, large multi-ethnic evangelical churches are usually run by white men, right? Because a lot of people aren't going to sit under the leader, the spiritual leadership of a black man in that way, right? Yeah. And it's like, but okay, like, so, and when we have multi-ethnic space, there's a, there's a, there's a great study on this by Dr. Glenn Bracy, who talks about those very kinds of spaces, because in many ways they're set up still prioritizing the needs and desires of their white congregants. Now, when I'm saying this, people I I want to be I want to be clear. I'm not saying that white people are bad, you know, and that and that these things are happening purposely, you know. Right. I, you know, we we think and do certain things just because of the culture we were raised in. It just seems normal to us. It's like a fish being in water, right? So anyway, the, a lot of these quote-unquote multi-ethnic spaces are set up to welcome token diversity. But they're but they're actually set up, um, they're organized around the preferences of white congregants, right? And so 
people of color are welcome to be there, but they're not welcome to talk about their full experiences in society. And they're not right. welcome to bring their laments about racism. And they're not welcome to bring that kind of stuff through the doors. The same people, um, but but now ask a white person if they're willing to just like, just go to a black, like go and be a member at a black church, right? Some are. There there are some. <laughs> Why are you looking at me? <laughs> some are. But you see far less of that the other right. way around. You'll see large multi-ethnic churches run by white people. Not just the senior pastor, but most of the leadership on staff will probably be white. You might have a black guy leading worship. You might have somebody of color do the announcements, right? But for the most part, <laughs> the leadership yeah. of the church is white. Yeah, when you said that, uh, I think about an interview that was done with a pastor in the Atlanta area, mm -hmm. um, just took over um, uh, one of the largest churches in Atlanta. Are you uh, trying not to say their name right yes, now? Okay. Yes, yes, I was going, yes. Because you know who it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know who it is. And so I'm, I'm going to try not to say the name. I was, I was about to blurt it out. Yeah, but no, I was no, like, no. wait, maybe he's doing no, that no. intentionally. We're, we're not calling, putting anyone on blast. Yeah, right? yeah no, no. Means, and no. he said that. He said that. He asked some of the people that were interviewing on this radio show and said, you know, where do you go to church? And they said, oh, we go to church in the outskirts. Mm -hmm. And it's a predominantly large um, church led by... Um, you know, uh, Anglo Caucasian male. And then he said, um, <laughs> he said this, he goes, it's, it's funny that the Atlanta area has probably, uh, per capita, the most African American oh, black people, right? <laughs> but the largest black African American church is led by a white male. What is it about that organization, that church that makes people in our community feel comfortable attending church there. But if it was the opposite, it wouldn't hold true. And so as you say that, I think about that conversation and say, what is it? And so for, you know, for me, I know before we started recording, we talked about Gregory of Nyssa, um, right? Fourth century that kind of is referred to by James Cameron Carter, who mm -hmm. I love and yeah. in his book, Race, A Theological Account, talks about really him saying that he's kind of like an abolitionist because he kind of talks about how really the change in the power structure that happens that we're talking about really happened when colonization came to be mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right kind of like sixth century but really mostly when it shifted right with france england america 16th to 19th century and he says it's when christianity divorced really it's kind of like jewish traditions yeah, mm -hmm. right and then all of a sudden colonization and the gospel was hijacked to be like, this is why we enslave people because now we got to get them saved. And now it's a power structure mm. that needs to happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to share that. No, I'm with you. <laughs> but uh, to, I mean, to your point about loving your neighbor, um, so much of, so much of this conversation to me revolves around the greatest commandment, you know, like racism is a complex issue. You know, there, it, it's so multifaceted it it affects so many different parts of our society it affects different people groups in different ways you know like when we talk about white supremacy it's not just black people that suffered under white supremacy although you know like black people have suffered a great i mean there's a there is a swahili word that some african american people use to talk about what what african peoples have experienced through colonization and its uh, descendants <clears throat> Uh, it's ma'afa, and it means an unimaginable 
calamity. Like it's mm. it's inexpressible, you know, what black people have endured under white supremacy. But so have indigenous people experienced, you know, violence. So have, uh, you know, Latinx people have experienced violence. Asian people have experienced violence under white supremacy. And so you could spend the rest of your life studying racism. You'll never reach the bottom of the barrel, you know. Um, but at the same time, I think that that commandment at least should make our posture and our our practice of Christianity very simple. And that is to love your neighbor, you know. Yeah. Not not just have good feelings about your neighbor, not just have like positive affection towards your neighbor or general like, you know, like not just smile at your neighbor. <laughs> right. You know? Not just say that you love your neighbor but to actually act lovingly. And it's interesting that when you brought up that, I thought about Jesus' parable parable about the Good Samaritan because Jesus tells this parable because he's talking about the greatest commandment. And somebody wants to press the issue, but who's my neighbor? And what he's really asking is, <laughs> but who do I get to exclude them? Right? Right, like, yes. Are you talking about everybody <laughs> though? Because there's some Samaritans walking around here. <laughs> And we think they're half breeds and that and because and yeah, therefore yeah. they're you know, they don't really know God. They think they know our God, but you right. know they don't practice like we do. Exactly. You know? They don't they don't truly practice at our temple, so they can't be us. Right, exactly. And you know, so so Jesus is telling that story to uh expound on the greatest commandment because of uh discrimination, because of ethnic discrimination yeah. and uh othering of people and all that kind of stuff. I, I wish we had time, and I know we don't, but I want to kind of bring in something, and that is um, uh, one way that it's this is a hard one because unfortunately the Bible no really says don't have slaves, right? And like right, scripture, yeah, it <laughs> scripture sometimes can be kind of frustrating the way that you know I was literally interacting with someone the other day on Twitter who is kind of arguing that slavery is a moral thing because the Bible says you can. Even though he says, well, you shouldn't have slaves, but the, it's a moral thing because the Bible says you can. My response is always, then you should be the first person in line. Right. So then right. you can tell then me. You, like, you should be, you, a, right, you to be, be the first enslaved. Person. Right. right. And then right. you tell me what you think about that <laughs> after having that experience. So my response, though, was, well, why don't you have a bunch of wives? Right. And and of course it was, it was well, no, I can't. I can't do that. I, absolutely not. Well. Also, you know, if we're going to talk about the Old Testament text, have have multiple wives. And right. even in the New Testament, it's only if you're a deacon or an elder, you should only have one. Right. But I bring that up to say, I wish we had time to really talk about trajectories of Scripture and why slavery is evil and right. wrong yeah, according yeah, yeah. to Scripture. But one thing I always kind of point out in this loving of the neighbor is Paul's response in, in the letter of Philemon. Yes, for sure. What is the response to a runaway slave? Yeah. It's not bring them back in, don't punish them. You know, I mean, part yeah. of that was part of the solution, but the real solution was treat, treat them like your like brother. brother. Yeah, because if you treat someone like a brother, I mean, me and my brother, we fought all the time. <laughs> the whole like kicking <laughs> thing every day probably actually happened in our life. Uh, there was always kicking both ways. It never stopped, right? Yeah. Uh, but if you actually treat someone like your brother, how can you enslave your brother? Right. Exactly. You wouldn't hold you wouldn't hold a family member as your property. You, you wouldn't. Just wouldn't do that, right? And so it's actually a very radical thing to say treat them like family because if yeah. you actually treat them like family and you love your family, yeah, you're not going to enslave them. Right. You actually will if you treat your neighbor like family. Yeah, you're going to care for your neighbor. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that when you when you bring it back down to loving your neighbor, 
you know, one thing that's missing, especially for uh, white evangelicals and, you know, that I've, that, I mean, that's where I grew up. I grew up among white evangelicals. So this seems to be like a huge hurdle is that, and it's, it's a part of American culture at large, really, is just the individualism of the way that we think as Americans, you know? And so we think about loving your neighbor as something that is like, I love you. And, yeah. you know, but we don't think about like, you know, the way that you vote affects a group of your neighbors, right? Um, the way that you talk about certain groups of people, you know, can be unloving to them, all this kind of stuff. And so it, it applies it applies to groups and it applies to more than just like our affection. It, apply, it applies to our actions. So what are we doing? What are we doing practically, you know, to express care for our neighbor? And, and what would you say... Um, I think sometimes these conversations, especially for someone who is white, who is going to kind of like be like uh, resistant, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of things. Uh, what would you say is a place that you see hope in all of this? Because I think sometimes we can be, we can actually kind of call out that, yeah, there's, there's a lot that still needs to be changed, but what is the hope that you see, especially in your position that you're saying, here's some examples that I see of that practice actually working well Well, and... How does that? How can you encourage people to say, "Here's, here's a way forward." It yeah. may not be that the. It's not just having someone at the table, right? Yeah, but actually, sure. how do you engage with people at the table? Well, the one. Well, first I'll say something that is not actually that hopeful, but it's just it's real. And the real the real thing is that we have too linear an idea of how society changes, right? Yeah. So we think that like, oh, Dr. King said, "I have a dream," and everybody believed him, and then we fixed racism and we moved on, but that's that's not the case like you know when when they integrated schools uh there were a bunch of schools that did and there were a bunch of schools that didn't right and then there were schools that were forced to integrate and then a bunch of white people established christian schools in their neighborhoods so that they could segregate again and put their white children into those quote-unquote christian schools and so that's the nature of racist progress and anti-racist progress is that there's it's a push and pull right they're always fighting the hopeful thing, two things. <clears throat> one is that we can look to history and we can see that at one point I would be afraid, like I wouldn't know if I step out my house if I would come back home that day, right? Yeah. Um, it has changed and it changed because ordinary people organized themselves and fought against racist oppression and racial injustice. And because we know that that happened then and it's happened all over the world throughout history, we know that it can happen again. That's one hopeful thing. The second thing is that there are more, um, I'm going to talk about white people for a second. There are more white Americans at this point in American history that care about racial justice than at any point in American history. Yeah. You know? And so those things, I mean, so we know that people can work together mm-hmm. to do it. And we know that there are a bunch of people that want to. Yeah. And so those are, th- that's really hopeful for me. Um, it, something to kind of go back and, and, I'm bad with names. I'm like, I forget my own best friend's name sometimes. So like, I'm, I I know the story, but I'm bad with name. But this uh-huh. happened a few years ago. And I think it kind of like points out to just how deeply ingrained it might be mm-hmm. where there was an African um, American fellow who worked at, I believe it was like a center for like autism mm-hmm. where he worked with autistic kids. Mm-hmm. And one of the kids had gotten out. So mm-hmm. he was going with the kid, you know, and you don't grab the kid. You don't do, yeah. you have to, you, 
It's it's mm-hmm. a process, right? You're not yeah. just going to go up and grab the kid and take him back inside. Yeah. And a police officer gets called because the kid has something that looks like uh-huh. a weapon. Yeah. And the African American guy, the video is there, right? He's just sitting on the ground. He's, on the ground. He's sitting on the Oscar ground. Grant. Yeah. Yeah. It's saying, you know, hey, don't With shoot. Mm-hmm. Right. His hands are up. Don't shoot. You know, explaining the situation. He gets shot. Yeah. And the police officer just says, I don't know why I did it. Yeah. Like, I just, I don't know. Like, it, yeah. I don't know. I just did it. Which, which honestly, I'm inclined to say, you probably don't know why you did it, yeah, but that's I mean, how deeply ingrained doesn't. it is in you to say, you find this situation harrowing in this weird way that yeah. you feel the need to use the power that you have. There's something about culture, right? Um, for instance, uh, I graduated from Fuller Seminary a few years ago, and just a couple years ago, there was a protest at Fuller at baccalaureate because of um, a lot of black students felt like they were being overlooked. And I was talking with a friend who felt and who felt like I was so disrespectful that you know they interrupted baccalaureate and they did that. And I'm talking to him, and he is from I think he's from Egypt, if I remember correctly. He's just he's not American. He's an immigrant. And where where he's from, you just you you defer to those in authority. Right. You don't you don't confront directly in that way. And so for him, it's just outlandish. I mean, America was started through revolution. Right. Like that's this right. is how our country was founded. It's so just completely different idea. You know, I know that a lot of people are, you know, People have some funny ideas. Fun, Americans have some funny ideas about protests these days too, but it's it's ingrained in American culture like that we do stand up mm-hmm. for what we believe is right, even if that means that we are directly confronting those in power. And so it's the it's that clash, right? And so for someone coming from that part of the world, that's just that's normal for them, and for us, it's normal for for us. We don't realize how deeply ingrained and natural these messages are. Is what I'm saying, right? And I don't think that people always understand like. You don't have to, in your heart or in your head, be saying, gosh, I hate black people so much. If a black person walks into this door, I'm going to follow him around just to make sure he doesn't steal anything. Gosh, I hate black people so much. Yeah. As, soon as, I, as soon as I pull one over, I'm going to shoot one. Gosh, I hate black people so much. You don't have to do that in order to have in, uh, ingested these ideas about, the, about how black people are dangerous, right? more prone to criminality, are less intelligent, less articulate. Mm-hmm are hypersexual or whatever. These ideas are in the air and we ingest them and then we act on them without always knowing that we have, right? Right. right. And this goes back to what I'm saying like I come in here, I had an onion sandwich, my breath smells my breath smells, but I can't smell it. You can. Right. Right? Right. And so I have to depend on you in that moment. <laughs> To tell me what it is like being in my presence right now and what you are experiencing from me right now, right? And it's up to me to have the humility to at least consider that y'all might be right. (laughs) You know? I'm glad you didn't have an onion sandwich before you came in. I'm going to be honest. My office is small. It would be a lot right now. We're sitting very close. (laughs) I, I said this actually in the podcast that I, that I did with Ray, which was my own experience of that. And just to make it very short, after 9-11, you know, being trained to distrust Middle Easterners mm, by mm-hmm. the news yeah, all the time, sure. end up in Birmingham for my PhD, a large population of Middle Easterners, and I'm walking to go get food, and I find myself in an area that's predominantly Middle Eastern and afraid. Wow. And, yeah. and afraid just... And I didn't even know why I was afraid. Yeah. You know, there's lights, there's cars driving by, whatever. 
but I'm afraid. Right. And I and I it took me a moment to realize why am I afraid? Right. What have I been ingrained with that's actually said? Now I could have taken it the other way and just been like, okay, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to get out of here and go eat somewhere yeah, else. Exactly. Or I could take the second to say, why am I doing this? Why am I afraid? Why why is this happening? I think the the common response is though just to turn and walk away. Right. To rather just to go maybe I need someone to call me out. Yeah. Maybe I need to sit down and process why I did what I did. Um, it's just common to just be like, it's easier just to walk away. Yeah, and it, I feel like people are so afraid of realizing that maybe they have that reaction or those thoughts. You know, like people are afraid of discovering that about themselves. But the truth is that we all experience, we all have some kind of prejudice. And it's actually good when we encounter our prejudices. You know, that's that's a, that's a valuable thing to right. know about yourself, right. right? Because then once you're aware of it, then you can do something about it. You can say, you can decide, am I going to operate out of this prejudice? Because, or am I going to not, not do that? And it's best for us to say, I'm going to confront this prejudice. I'm going to deal with it because prejudice often leads to different types of mistreatment, discrimination, and in the worst cases, violence, right? Yeah, I, theologically, to bring in something kind of similar, right? When we talk about sins, yes. we, we talk about sins of Ray commission. Ray and I were just talking about this oh, last nice. night. <laughs> yeah, We talk about commission and omission, right? Which is just the way the sins that you commit and the yeah. sins that you partake in by not doing something. Yes, And just because you're not doing something doesn't mean that you're not sinning. Right. And I think when we want to actually kind of pair this and recognize that racism is a sin. Yes. And just because we're not aware of our own doesn't mean that we're not participating in it. My other thing is though, like why are people, why are Christians so afraid of the idea that they might be sinning? Well, I think it's just, it's just such a, it's, it's a ridiculous idea to me. Like, because especially like coming from the evangelical background that I came from, where like all we talked about was how, Jesus forgives sin, <laughs> right? Jesus forgives sin. And not only that, you can repent of sin and the Holy Spirit will help you do it. Right. So and then like, there's the go and sin no more part as yeah. well, right? And God and God said, I'll help you do it. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. right? You don't yeah. have to do it on your own. You don't, have, you. You, don't have, you don't have to just not sin because like that would be really hard, right? Like, okay, you did a bad thing. Don't ever do that again. You know, and now you just got to prove to God that you're better. Right. No, God is like, I'm going to help you yeah. to not do that thing, right? Yeah. So what's the big deal? Like, like, if you find out that you have been unintentionally participating in some kind of racial, you know, racist system or racist behavior or something like that. Like, as a Christian, it's like, oh, you know what to do with this. If you say that you have not sinned, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Yeah. But if you were will confess your sin... He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's it's the it's the we should both be remorseful, but also glad that we know a sin in our life when we find out one, because then yes, we can yes. repent and move on. And just like what you're saying with the spirit, I mean, it's Paul's idea in Galatians that you know, depending on which translation, and there there's one translation that I particularly well, it's in few different translations, but there's a kind of translation I like where it says where Paul says, if you live life by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Mm. But some will actually put live life by the Spirit and do not, oh. as if it's something that you can do. Right. Right. But really what Paul is saying is, if you live life by the Spirit, you will not. Yeah. Right? Because you're going to be moved and shaped, and, and that's not a, a you're saved 
you're instantly right. sanctified, you're done, right. you are not going to sin anymore. It is participate, continually participate with the Spirit, right. and you will be shaped right. to sin no more. Yeah. Um, but how else are you going to do that unless you're participating, unless you're aware, unless you yeah. take the time to say, what is the sin in my life? And is someone else going to be willing to call me out and we, on my stuff? And it seems like we just have a lot of people, though, who are not willing to even broach the possibility that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I want to speak in just entirely theological terms in this sense, because I go, yes, the connection that you just made, racism is a sin. I thought we were all sinners. Right. So then what's the problem here? Like, right. every, I, I think it's really dangerous for people to just be walking around and saying, I'm incapable. Right. right. I'm yeah. incapable of committing that kind right. of sin. Yeah. Right. Like, if anything, I think we should be on guard. Right. And saying, like, listen, I know one thing about human beings is that we're prone to mess up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. So please tell me. <laughs> right. Please tell me. Like, right. uh, sometimes I mess up and I don't know it. So right. I, I should be thankful when someone tells me that I mess up. Now, I know it's hard just as human beings also to admit that we're wrong. Right. Right. It's hard to we say. We love that confirmation bias. Yeah. Right. We love the confirmation bias. We <laughs> we hate to hear that right. maybe we've got it wrong. But I think that that is, I think that's the beauty of being, of, of, of ascribing to, to Christianity, of being a disciple of Jesus is that, is that. I, I thought, and I say I thought because I run into a lot of people that I went to school with who seem to disagree, but I thought that God leads us to do what we would otherwise not do without God, right? right. Like left to our own devices, yeah, we would be messing up all the time. It can't nobody tell us any differently. In fact, I might not even care, right? Right. But But because I claim to follow Jesus, I'm actually interested in the ways that I might be messing up. Yeah. Because I want to be the person that God created right. me to be. And and it's not a negative approach to our, our humanity. It is an honest approach. Correct. Exactly. And that's that's the hard thing for some people is they take it as super negative. Oh, this is negative. I can't believe. Rather than saying, actually, I can believe. Yeah. And I want to get better. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we like to think, well, I'm good enough. Yes. Or because we've kind of made salvation ab about this very granular, mm -hmm. have you said a prayer, you're done, yes. you're in. Yeah. And we've kind of allowed people to say, well, I don't actually need to keep working out yeah. my salvation. Like we just say, oh, okay, I'm saved, yeah. I'm done. Rather, actually this yeah. real biblical metaphor of working out our salvation yeah. So much so with fear and trembling, and right. we would have to talk about what those two words really mean in our context, <laughs> right? Uh, but with with real sincerity, real desire. Yeah, and I think that when we talk about sin, like some people experience so much shame, right, that they can't really engage the conversation in a healthy way. So it's like a lot of people can't be held accountable because, especially when we're talking about racism, right? Like I feel like a lot of people feel like if they're if they've done something that's racially insensitive or worse, right, then I am a racist. Yeah. That's shame, yeah. right? It's not about what I did. It's about who I am. Right, right. right? It's the scarlet letter. You yeah. Know, that you can't, like, this can't be removed. And and, and forever, right? It's yeah. accountability becomes condemnation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. And that's not what it's about. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this like, uh, Paul talks about how, like, there's a certain kind of, of shame or remorse. I don't know how, how it, you know, how it translates from, you know, Greek best, but there's a certain kind of shame that keeps you preoccupied with yourself. Mm. And there's a certain kind of shame that leads to, to repentance. 
Yeah. And we just we need more of the latter. Yeah. Now, I mean, you know, we're talking we're talking with me, so I'm gonna go there. I I have to only conclude that there has to be something else that's blocking Christians from being able to just in, engage the fact that I'm a human being. I mess up sometimes, you know, because as a Christian, we already know there is a mechanism in this whole thing that's yeah. supposed to help us to do better. So then the problem couldn't just couldn't just be that. And I think that at the end of the day, that um, whether it's conscious or not, that white Americans have benefited too much from from the status quo to meaningfully confront it, you know? Yeah, it's it's too hard. You you become so ingrained, right? I think that there's I think there's also just the issue of losing power. Yeah. There's the issue of like you because you could like we could have a different society. We could rearrange rearrange this thing in a way that is just, you know, um, and the question becomes, why don't we? Yeah, like it, it really. It, at the end of the day, it really becomes, why don't we? I think yeah. about. I mean, you think about Moses, right? Moses goes from, man, Pharaoh's seat has everything, like access, mm-hmm. like all, you know, kind of all cart, to, man, now he's on the run. Yes, like now he's having to live like he's Hebrew the, now, hundred percent. There's this transition, and in that transition. I think we begin to kind of see the reality of, oh, like this is what happens when you begin to like when you have that exchange. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, everything, you know, and I I love what you've kind of, you know, highlighted in regards to this idea of just common sense. What we know is common sense about Christianity Mm -hmm. the entire time of, I mean, Jesus's journey on this earth. What we see is him helping us to understand Hey, it's it's not the way that you think power is going to produce. Right. It's not the way that you think it's going to work out. It's not the way in which it's going to be um, implemented. And still, yet as a society, yeah, we have allowed ourselves to be regulated by this idea that if I give this power up, right, like I lose everything. Right. It's it's the 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 picture of Jesus in Revelation isn't still is not the warrior king who comes back. Mm. It's the lamb who was slain. Mm. And by the lamb who was slain, all of this gets fixed. Right. Not by someone coming back to mm. kill and to destroy or to take power, but actually to say, I, I was killed. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I feel like we could keep going. At some point, we're we going to have to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we could. Um, but thanks so much, Andre, for being with us. I think that's a great kind of place to maybe kind of stop and let some people chew on what we've talked about. But um, tell maybe tell the listeners how they can connect with you, ways they can yeah. engage with your thoughts, or even about your podcast and your, yes. your website. Yes. Well, I mean, everything you know that people need to know if they want to uh, get in touch or they want to follow more of my work is to visit my website. It's andrehenry.co. And uh, my, I send out an email every week about social change. Um, I've been studying how do societies change and how do ordinary people work together to do that. And I send out insight from, from my studies every week, every Saturday morning. They can sign up for that on my website. And um, that's also where I send out podcast episodes, all kind of stuff on the email. Yeah. And I'm pretty active on Twitter. So if people just want to like chat or something like that, it's at Andre Henry. 
Oh, you're very active. <laughs> I'm jealous about how much I can't be active on it because I'm like, oh, man, I just want to talk to Andre all the time. Uh, well, again, thanks so much, Andre, and I know we'll, we'll have you back. Of course. At some point, we're going to have you back. So yeah. um, tune in, and uh, you'll hear Andre again sometime in the future. Thanks so much, Andre. Thanks. Thanks.